0: Are you ready to realize the true potential in your life and help others do the same? Get equipped to create a thriving future with the Secrets of Success podcast. Inspire others to live, lead, and work on purpose, and experience the joy of watching satisfaction and productivity come to life. And now, here's your host, Dr. Ken Keyes.
1: Welcome to Secrets of Success podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ken Keyes. You know, each week we try to bring experts and information that will transform your life. And one of the things that is one of the most difficult things for us to do in life is change. And a a lot of times, you know, we don't really admit that change that we need to change or we don't seek the help. But today we have the help. Today we have the expert. Today, actually, we have the number one rated executive coach in the world. The number one New York Times bestseller Triggers, which I have personally voted as my best bu- business book in the last five years. Also, the author of What Got You Here Won't Get You There. Could you please welcome uh, our guest, Dr. Marshall Goldsmith. Marshall, glad to have you on the show.
0: Uh, thank you so much for inviting me.
1: <laughs> well, it is certainly our pleasure. And so, Marshall, just to help uh, the listeners, I always like to start the show with getting to know who's Marshall. I know you've been in this industry and really helping other leaders become who they want to become for almost four decades. But where did Marshall come from? What was the impetus to you getting involved in this industry? And and just get us a sense of who you are and, and what led you into this work for the for the greater part of your life.
0: Well, a little background. My name is Marshall. I'm from a small town called Valley Station, Kentucky. I went to engineering school at a little engineering school, Rose Holman Institute of Technology. got an MBA at Indiana University, a PhD from the UCLA Anderson School. I was a college professor and dean when I was very young. And then for the last 39 years, I've done three things. One is I give talks or teach classes, which is what I love to do the most. I'm a professor of management practice at the Dartmouth Tuck School, I travel all around the world speaking and teaching, I've been to 39 different countries, excuse me, 97 different countries, um, I've been doing it for 39 years, been to 97 countries, over 11 million frequent flyer miles on American Airlines alone, <laughs> I, uh, so I love speaking and teaching, that's what I enjoy the most. Then coaching, executive coaching is what I'm most famous for. I've been the coach of the CEO of Ford Pfizer Glaxo, president of the World Bank, head of the Mayo Clinic, all kinds of wonderful people. And what I love about coaching is that's where I learn everything. Then I write and edit books and articles. I've done thirty-five books, uh three New York Times bestsellers and and then then I do internet things. I, I give away all my material. All my material you may copy, share, download, duplicate, use in church nonprofit or charity, any way you wish. I have hundred and something videos online myriad articles, blogs, so any of my material that will help anyone, I always try to give away. I figure we're all going to die anyway, do a little good here. And then uh, I got into this business. I met a very famous man named Dr. Paul Hersey. He got double booked. I was 28. He said, can you do what I do? I'd been following him around, trying to look mm-hmm. at I, I said, I, I don't know. He said, I need help. Can you do it? I said, I don't know. He said, I'll pay you $1,000 for one day. I was making $15,000 in one year. I said, I'll try I did a program for the Metropolitan Life Insurance Company. It was ranked first place of all the speakers. They called Paul up and said, We were very angry when he showed up. He wasn't you, but he came in first place. Will you send him back? Paul said, Do you want to do this? I said, there's a bear shit in the woods? That's how I got into this business. <laughs> so that was
1: completely intentional. It was all planned out and it was on your your mapping and your purpose list for sure.
0: Not so much.
1: <laughs> okay. Well, that, that's awesome, uh, uh Marshall. When you think about, you know, just the the little things in life that that uh trigger us into a direction for the rest of it. I just wanted to back up a bit because, you know, uh, and by the way, I just wanted to publicly in this show thank you for, you know, writing an endorsement and uh, for our book, Deliberate Leadership. You know, you're so busy, yet you took the time to do that for. Uh, those of us that are in that industry. And so I can attest that you give back and you are accessible, which is a lot of cases people aren't. So I just wanted to thank you publicly for doing that.
0: Oh, thank you so much for the good work you're doing.
1: Uh, thank you as well. So when we think about you know this industry, Marshall, and I want to get into sort of your insights and discoveries over those forty years of leadership and change and et cetera. But prior to just going in, that you do something that's different than nobody else does, frequently, anyways. Maybe there's others who do it, but you don't see it, you don't hear it much. And you say, I give all my stuff away. Yet in the intellectual property, everybody wants to hoard it. And people want to protect it, copyright, all that kind of stuff. What what is sort of driving you to just sort of give that away? Yet still believe that you have a business on the other side with it. How, how does that work for you? What really is driving that thought process, which is contrary to what most authors do.
0: Well, you know, as I said, my theory is that, you know, if any of my material will help anybody have a better life, that's great. And so one is I just try to give everything away because I think it's a nice thing to do. There's nothing, by the way, when I say give away, there's nothing behind the door. It's not if you get this, that enables you to sign up later for something you pay for. There's none of that. I give everything away. So, uh, you know, other than hey, all you read and all that you see, that's all that's there. There's no secret behind the door, behind. other than what I give away. So I'm pretty much totally transparent, give away everything I know. And my attitude is, why not? Why not? It helps people have a better life. And, you know, I'll give you a funny story. You may Please. ask, well, why would people hire me? The people that hire me, really, they have enough money that they're not going to hire the person that read the book. They're going to hire the person that wrote the book. And if they want to hire me, they're going to hire me. They don't care that other people do what I do anyway. And I have a funny story. One guy was in Chicago, and he said, uh, well, you know, I'm either going to hire you or this other coach, John. He said, do you know John? I said, I do know John. He said, well, John said you trained him. Did you do that? I said, I did. He said, do you think John is a good coach? I said, no, I think he's a fantastic coach. He said, do you think he's as good as you are? I said, be honest, better, younger, smarter, better I'm old and forgetful. I think he's way better than me. He said, but he only charges 10% of what you charge. I said, well, there you go. He's not only better than me, but higher value. He said, why should I hire John? I said, well, what part of it? I don't care. Did you just not hear? He said, do you do anything better than John? I said, well, it's funny. We're in Chicago. I'm having dinner next week over at the Ritz-Carlton with the you know, the head of the CEO of Boeing commercial aircraft and the president of the Federal Reserve Board and... CEO of the Tribune Company, say on the Chicago Tribune, you know. I go down the list and I said, see if you hire me, go to dinner, hire him, no dinner.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's definitely worth the 90% different, right, Marshall?
0: (laughs) That was it. Let's hire you. Well, there is
1: no replacement for experience.
0: And, you know, look, I have dinners with my clients every two to three months. What's that worth? Hey, my next client meeting, my friend Alan Mulally, who's one of the greatest leaders who ever lived, is going to spend six hours of his life trying to help my clients. What's that worth? It's worth far more than whatever they pay me. Absolutely.
1: Peer, peers, and just the connections and the networks, And that's really my transition, uh, Marshall, when we think about your work, and I've watched most of your YouTubes, not all of them, but most of them. And so when we think about, you know, your work, one of the questions I have for you, and by the way, I, I'm being 100% authentic that I've said that Triggers to All My Clients is one of the best business books I've read. I use it now, uh, as a, as a, I'll call it a foundational piece for the clients that I work with. So everybody gets a copy of your book and then we go through the coaching grid. So we'll do that a little bit later. But all that being said, Marshall, what have you found when we think about all the work you've done? What are the primary issues or things that leaders and individuals that you're coaching with are working on or struggling most with or need the most help with? What would be the three or four or five things that just seem to kind of stand out as a common theme for people to really to transform and change their behaviors?
0: Well, I'll, I'll try to give you maybe three three case studies. Um, the big issue is typically issues of ego, winning, being right. You see, when you're at the bottom of an organization, it's all about you, you're an individual achiever and you have to prove how smart you are and right you are and clever you are. The higher you go up in an organization, the less you want to do that. It needs to be all about them, how great they are and Your role isn't to prove how smart and wonderful you are, it's to make everybody else smart and wonderful. This is a very difficult transition. One of the greatest leaders I ever met, he said, you know, for the great individual achiever, it's about me, and for the great leader, it's all about them. It's very hard to make this transition. I was interviewed in the Harvard Business Review and asked a question, what is the number one problem of all the successful people you've coached over the years? What is their number one problem? My answer is winning too much. What's that mean? If it's important, we want to win. If it's meaningful, we want to win. If it's critical, we want to win. If it's not worth it, we want to win anyway. Winners love winning. It's very hard for winners not to constantly win. i give you a case study that almost all my clients fail, almost all your listeners will fail. You want to go to dinner at restaurant X, your wife, husband, or partner wants to go to dinner at restaurant Y. Give a heated argument. Go to restaurant Y, it was not your choice. The food tastes awful and the service is terrible. Mm -hmm. option a critique the food point out our partner was wrong this mistake could have been avoided if only you'd listen to me 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 option b shut up eat the stupid food try to enjoy it and have a nice night what would i do what should i do almost all my clients what would i do critique the food what should i do shut up (laughs) even worse example you have a hard day at work you come home your wife, husband, or partner is here. The other person says, I had such a hard day. I had such a hard day. We reply, you had a hard day. You had a hard day. Do you have any idea what I had to put up with today? Do you think you had a hard day? We're so competitive, we have to prove we're more miserable than the people we live with. We guy. always want to win over, don't we? We've got to win. I gave this example. in My class at Dartmouth, the young guy in the back raised his hand. You know what he said? I did that last week. I said, what happened? He said, my wife looked at me. She said, honey, you just think you had a hard day? It's not over. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Incoming. Incoming. In triggers. I mentioned a case study. I got an email from someone years ago. If any of your listeners would send me such an email, I would love this call. The email said, I want to send you an email today and say thank you. I said yesterday my wife was having a terrible day, and she called up and was talking about what a bad day she was having, and I was under a lot of stress and pressure and tense and I was just getting ready to tell her how her problems paled in significance to my own I said for some reason I remembered your course and I started breathing and I thought this is my wife this is not the enemy and I said I love you thank you for everything you've done for the family I said I went home spent $25 bought her some flowers gave her the flowers and said I love you so It was the best $25 I've ever spent thank you very much well to me that's the whole point of the book
1: Just to let it go. So it is a difficult, it is a difficult change. Isn't it interesting, Marshall? And I'm curious about your insight about this is that our whole sort of society is around this self-centered, driven, I have to prove myself to get there. And then when I get there, I have to be nearly
0: opposite what it took me to get there. What's your insight about that? I know somebody that wrote a book once called What Got You Here. Won't get you there.
1: I think you know that person fairly well, Marshall.
0: <laughs> I know that gentleman. <laughs> what got you here won't get you there. That's what the whole book is about. And it's you know what got you here. Nothing wrong with that. You want to go someplace better. It's not going to get you there. You've got to you've got to be willing to change. And it is very difficult. By the way, founders. Oh my goodness, so hard for a founder to let go. Mm. Entrepreneur, so hard. Because, you know, their ego, their soul is tied up in the company, me, me, me. And, you know, then one day you've got to let go. If the company's going to grow, it can't be all about you anymore. Probably the biggest challenge for entrepreneurs, founders, is, is just that, letting it go, making it about them, not about you. Easy in theory, incredibly difficult in practice. Now,
1: a lot of my clients fit into this category who have been just extremely successful. As you know, maybe the profile isn't always this, but driven, um, go go go. What would your recommendation be to these founders to, to help them to let go? Because in many cases, it's 20, 30, 40 years infested. Everything about them, their identity, is connected to this little baby.
0: That's it.
1: What do you What do you do? What How do you How do you help them in this transition to let go of something that's sort of like mentally and emotionally and neurologically entrenched for the last three decades?
0: Well, the question is, do they want the business to live on beyond them, number one? And then number two, do they want the business to grow? And if they think, well, you know, I really just love doing this myself. It's kind of my avocation. It's fun for me. Uh, That's okay. They don't have to let go. Nothing wrong with that. It's not immoral, illegal, or unethical. On the other hand, if you want the business to grow and you want the business to be something beyond yourself, it can't be all about you by definition. So you have to start working with people and saying, all right, how can I hire great people? How can I find people who are better at what they're doing than I am? How can I develop that next generation of leadership to take over? And how can I start letting go? You know, one thing I do, I wrote a book called Succession, Are You Ready?, about CEO Succession. And In that book, I, I've, I've done five programs at my home, uh, two in California, two I have a home in New York, too, two in New York. And, um, and these programs are very distinguished people. I mean, the CEO of Walmart has been there, the president of the World Bank, uh, you know, head of the Mayo Clinic, uh, all kinds of, head of the Nature Conservancy, wonderful people. And these are older people like me, and the topic is, what are you going to do now? what next? And, you know, they have to learn to let go. And as you get near the end of any transition, you have to look at three factors. One is called running the business. And that running the business, you have to cut back on that because when you leave, you're no longer going to be running the business. Number two is developing your successor. Well, as you go through, you're not doing much at the beginning, but then you really need to focus that. But then you need to let go of that because the successor needs to be ready to take over. But number three, and this is where I spend my time creating a great rest of your life, to really be able to let go, you need to have some place to go. Mm. And I find that the leaders who have really focused on what am I going to do with the rest of my life, they have neat plans, they're excited, they're happy to let go. And the ones that don't have something out there, and all of a sudden they get near the end of that CEO job, and you know what they're looking at? Crappy golf with old men at the country club while eating chicken salad sandwiches and discussing gallbladder surgery all day. So exciting, Marshall, right? Hey, they go right off a cliff.
1: <clears throat> well, we know the, the stats work. around those people, You know, forget even CEOs, that, uh, that retire without some kind of purpose, that their longevity is certainly cut short quickly because of that, because we don't have a purpose. We don't have something that we're doing with.
0: You really need to find two things in life. Well, there are five th- in our meetings. we find five things that matter. The first one is health. If You don't have health. The rest of it's irrelevant, so take care of yourself. The second one is wealth, but wealth doesn't matter as much as you think. Everyone I coach, money is completely irrelevant in terms of their happiness in life. Another million dollars, more or less, is not going to make any difference. In fact, if you look at wealth, once you have a middle class or slightly above middle class income, there's no correlation between wealth and happiness anyway. Mm-hmm. Like the studies of people who won the lottery three years later, they're mostly no happier. The other thing that matters is great relationships with people you love. And very important not to be so focused on your career, you kill all the relationships with people that you love. Then assuming that you have a middle class or upper middle class income, that you are healthy and they have great relationships with people you love, what else matters? Only two things, happiness and meaning. Happiness and meaning. Does Do I love the process of what I'm doing? Does it make me happy? And is it meaningful for me? And, again, happiness is the process. I, I like it. It makes me excited. I'm happy to do it. Meaning is the end result. The The results of this process matter. They're important. And, by the way, you need both. You see, if you just try to amuse yourself, the, you know, playing golf thing, mm. it might be amusing, but there's no meaning. After a while, it's empty. You know, after the ninth cruise, the cruise director jokes, they get a little, they get a little old. You know, that. 14th castle is not so neat anymore. And then on the other hand, you don't want meaning without happiness. Then you're kind of a victim or a martyr. You need both happiness and meaning, the results and the process. And no one can define happiness for you but you. No one can define meaning for you but you. Those have to come from your heart. Absolutely. And then people have to go on that discovery to find it. Exactly.
1: So if they've been a CEO and their meaning has been that work for whatever time it is, all of a sudden... Uh, they have to fill that void, but they also have to look for
0: that. Let me give you a great case study. My friend Mark Tarsik, a former managing director of Goldman Sachs. Uh, I mean, in fact, he was a managing partner of Goldman Sachs. He was there for the IPO, made some, a bunch of money, He left, and now he's been for seven years as CEO of the Nature Conservancy, a you know, wonderful organization. He doesn't take a check. He donates his time. He's really busted his butt uh, for a cause he believes in, which is wonderful, but he's been there seven years. Eventually, he's got to look in that mirror and say, okay, it's time for me to start thinking about the next transition. What next? What next? And You know, you, you need a what next. Absolutely, absolutely. Just, uh, just as an aside, this is a little trivia. There's no word
1: for retirement in Hebrew. So, really, we're not supposed to fully retire. We, we have our fellow colleague, uh, Alan Weiss, who said, I'm not retiring. He did a full video blog about when he turned 65. I'm just beginning. Well, so, uh, and we know that this wisdom that um, that we bring, or people bring, when they get into their fifties and sixties and seventies, is that it's not to be banished. It's really to be embraced in whatever context that fits for them.
0: Yeah, exactly. He and I are doing a book together.
1: Oh well, that's awesome. And uh, Alan, Alan actually did. I did some mentoring with Alan twenty-five years ago, and then we've sort of stayed connected with uh, with him and I just love his work and what he is doing there so I know that you did some speaking for one of his conferences as well not that long ago so that's great what's the name of the book just so that the listeners know
0: we're still working on it
1: okay (laughs) okay well that's awesome I'm I'm that's just gonna rock that's gonna absolutely rock so when we think about ego that was one of the items there and and we got into this idea of founders what were a couple other items that you really discovered
0: well, it's no, the most kind of adding too much value Now what does that mean I'm young, smart, enthusiastic, I come to you with an idea you think it's a great idea rather than just saying great idea our natural tendency as leaders to say well that's a nice idea why don't you add this to it the problem is quality of the idea may go up five percent my commitment to execute the idea may go down fifty percent it's not like my idea now it's yours incredibly difficult for smart successful people not to constantly add value um, especially engineers, scientists one of my good coaching clients retired a few years ago. His name is J.P. Garnier, CEO of GlaxoSmithKline. I asked J.P., what you learned about leadership as the CEO of this huge company? He said, I've learned a very hard lesson. And Every time your listeners become more successful in life, this lesson will become more real for them. He said, my suggestions become orders. My suggestions become orders. And I said, if they're smart, they're orders. If they're stupid, they are orders. If I want them to be orders, they are orders. And if I do not want them to be orders, they are orders anyway. My suggestions become orders. Ask him, what you learn from me when I was your coach that helped you the most? He said, tell me one lesson. Help me be a better leader and have a happier life. I said, what was that one lesson? He said, before I speak, stop and breathe and ask myself one question. Is it worth it? Is it worth it? He said, as the CEO of this huge company, 50% of the time I've had the discipline to stop, to breathe, and ask myself, is it worth it? What did I decide? Am I right? Maybe. Is it worth it? No.
1: Mm. So it's getting the discipline for them just to, to stop it, to just back off, because these individuals are confidently... Contribute, I guess, is the word.
0: Well, here, here's the problem. Effectiveness of execution is a function of a, what's the quality of the idea times b, what's my commitment to make it work. Well, we can get so wrapped up improving the quality five percent, we damage the commitment fifty percent. And the the damage of the commitment is
1: when it moves from their idea to my suggestion.
0: Exactly.
1: Okay. Thank you, Marshall. Let's and what would be a third well, item?
0: A third one. A third one is from well, I, I teach people this, uh, don't start sentences with no, butter, however, always proving that others are wrong. Uh, one night I had dinner with General Eric Shinseki, who was head of the United States Army, and I said, you know, he looked at me and says, "Marshal, who's your favorite customer? I said, sir, my favorite customer, smart, dedicated, hardworking, driven to achieve, creative, entrepreneurial, cares about the company, cares about the customers, great values, high integrity, gets results. And as a stubborn opinionated know-it-all, that never wants to be wrong. We're in a room surrounded by two to four-star generals. I said, sir, you think any of the generals in this very room may fit such a description? He looked at me and he goes, Marshall, we have a target-rich opportunity. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, I teach people never start a sentence with no but or however. If somebody talks to me, the first word of mouth is no, what I say, shut up, you're wrong, but, or however, disregard everything I just said. Terrible habit. And I find my clients twenty dollars every time they do that. So one guy I'm talking to, he says, But Marshall, I said, That's free. If you do that again, I'm gonna find you twenty dollars. He said, But Marshall, I said, twenty. He said, No, forty, no, 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 60 sixty, eighty hundred. He lost four hundred and twenty dollars in an hour and a half. At the end of an hour and a half he looked at me and said, Thank you. I had no idea. I did that twenty one times, so he's throwing it in my face. How many times would I done I did you not been throwing it in my face? Fifty times, a hundred times. No wonder people think I'm stubborn. First thing I do when somebody talks to me is I I prove I know more than them or they're wrong over and over and over again. He got so much better at being a good listener, just learning that. Interesting, Marshall,
1: that once I had written you, or read your book about the no button, however, I started to pay attention about that in people's families. And it was it's amazing how many times significant others or spouses or parents or children will use no but or however in their just day to day conversation.
0: Oh, they just
1: start the sentence with, Oh no, no no the movie starts at seven, not not at six thirty.
0: Right. No, 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 but 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 but. Uh the other one, especially with the families, don't say that's great but the worst thing we can do when recognize another person, that's great but um Two emails, a bad email and a worse email. Uh, in my class, I, I say, well, first I say, imagine the kid comes home from school with five A's and one B, you know, natural tendencies. That's great, but why don't you get an A every time? And the kid's thinking, that's great. Well, I'm not asked like you for a father. <laughs> well, you know, terrible habit. So one email, a gentleman says, you know, I lived a, that's great, but case study, my son came home with five A's and a B, and I, I said, son, daddy's proud of you. Then he wrote, my son looked at me in silence. And he said, I repeated, son, that's great. Daddy's proud of you. Then he wrote, my son said, when are you going to start yelling at me? He said, I'm not going to yell at you. I'm proud of you. He said, my son was so happy. That's the bad email. Now, a worse one. Another gentleman thought that was a funny story. He wrote, I went home and told the story of that other father to my family. I thought it was funny. He said, my son looked at me and said, Daddy, I made five A-pluses and one A and you told me that's great, but he wrote, my son said, I've never felt so hurt in my entire life. His son was the valedictorian of his high school, number one student in the whole school. The message was getting from daddy, not good enough, not mm. good enough. We say that's great, but enough times to people we love, you know, we teach them there is no great. You know. I'm, I'm
1: curious, Marshall, you know, we're, we, we both have psychology backgrounds. What drives individuals like the parents to do it? Where like, where does this habit come from that seems to be so entrenched almost culturally, well, at least I mean, in North America?
0: Right. Well, this is not just North America, other places. India's worse. Mm. Go work in India, you think it's bad in North America, it's worse in India, right? Or China, not all of China, but the up end of China, it's, it's worse, right? Yeah, this is basically back to that same thing of ego identification, desire to win, only now we're not winning ourselves, we're vicariously winning through our child. That little league parent screaming at the kid and the umpire, all that stuff, what's that about, right? Well, it's not the kid out there in the field. It's the parent out there in the field. We've become identified with the kid, it's all of a sudden, me, me, me again, kid doesn't win, I don't win. We ego-identify with the kid, and all of a sudden, you know, we just get wrapped up in all this stuff, and all of a sudden, you know, it's not their life anymore. It's our life. Mm. Well, we, uh, you know, living in Canada, we have a lot
1: of, quote-unquote, hockey parents. Oh yeah. Many who have been banished from the arena because their behavior is just so pathetic. Uh, It's interesting. It's uh, being a parent is the one
0: job you never have to apply to get. Right, well, getting into in I mean, Canada, yeah, the hockey parent is the worst, getting into fights with other parents and all the other horror stories about that. Oh, so I've, uh, yeah, or, or, um, even beating
1: on young referees who are 12 and 13 years old. I said, what's, what's going on? So, uh, one of the more difficult things to do, yet one of the more powerful things is to just be conscious of our language of no but or however. Now Marshall with and thank you for all of that. One of the questions I have that is a curiosity for me personally and hopefully the listeners as well. Can you take us through uh, fairly quickly a I'm now your new client. I'm a CEO of a Fortune 100 company. Can you take me through the protocol or process that you do sort of up front and then to kind of engage me. So just share with us your methods and your process that you would work with me. I know you say you get feedback, uh, you get all this kind of information, but just share with the listeners, as a coach and working with leaders, what are the steps you take? I'm your brand-new client. What what would you go through as you establish and, and help
0: me and change? Well, the first thing is I don't get paid if my clients don't get better. Better is not judged by me or them. It's judged by everyone around them. So I'm very selective about who I work with. So, and also, my coaching process is hyper-efficient. Most coaches are paid on how much time do I spend. Well, I don't get paid for that. I get paid on results. The less time I spend to get results, the better it is for everybody. Yesterday, I talked with a man named Ian Reed. Ian's the CEO of Pfizer, world's largest drug company. What's his time worth? He doesn't need me to waste his valuable $250 million market cap time. Mm -hmm. I'm not there to waste time. I'm there to help him get better. The less time I spend, the better it is for both of us. So the first thing is... In my coaching, there's no arguing. You either Everything is either required or optional. If it's required, if you don't do it, I just refuse to work with you. I'm not here to judge you. I mean, I don't care if you do it or not, but I'm just not going to work with you because I don't want to waste my time. What is required? If I work with you, you will get confidential feedback from everyone around you. You will pick important behavior to improve. You will talk to coworkers about what you learn. You and your boss or the board will agree these are the right behaviors and the right people. You will follow up on a regular basis. Apologize for your previous sins. Listen to me talk on a regular basis. Get measured twice. You get better, I get paid. You don't get better, it's all free. And if you don't want to do all that stuff, it's perfectly okay. I just won't work, work with you. I just don't work with you. After that, everything is optional. So what happens then is you and say if you're the ceo you and the board agree here's the right people i give feedback to you that's confidential you agree here's the right behavior i get a contract if you get significantly better at these behaviors judged by these people it's worth this money you develop a clear follow-up process where you apologize for your sins you involve people on a regular basis you listen to them you follow up with me but everything after that is feed forward now what's feed forward i give them ideas. I don't say they have to do them. Just listen and thank me. But don't talk back. Don't say no better, however, and don't argue. Why? It's a complete waste of time. They're adults. If they want to do it, they will. If they don't, they're not going to anyway. That's fine. Just listen, shut up, and say thank you. They learn to ask for it. Feed forward. They learn to ask for input, listen, shut up, and say thank you. They don't promise to do everything everyone around them suggests. They just promise to listen to the ideas, think of them, and do what they can. Then they follow up over and over and over again and... And if the research I've done on this is pretty compelling, I did a study called Leadership of the Context Board. If any of your listeners would like to see it, just send me an email, Marshall at marshallgoldsmith.com. I'll send it to them. Marshall has two L's. It's pretty obvious, 86,000 people from around the world. My coaching process pretty much always works. It works in every country. It works at every level of management. It works in every industry. You know what I have found, though? It, shockingly, it doesn't work if you don't do it. Amazing!
1: (laughs) What a shocker,
0: Marshall. (laughs) Yeah, it doesn't work if you don't do it, and you don't get better because you listen to a talk or sit in the class or read a book. You actually have to work. Wow. And if you work, you get better. And if you don't, guess what? You. Well, I've got good news though about my research. You know what else it shows? No. All the people I teach, the ones that do the stuff, I got good news. I get better. I got even better news. People do nothing. Don't get worse.
1: Don't get worse.
0: They stay the same. They
1: stay the same, so you're, you're in neutral on that one. <laughs> Thank you for that. Uh, Marshall, I, I want to um, kind of stir things up a little bit. Uh, there's lots of coaching that's out there right now. You're the number one rated coach, so obviously you know what you're doing. I mean, number one is still number one, so congratulations on that. There are a lot of coaching methodologies where really the coach is driving the participant to come up with their own answers, and the coach really doesn't add their comments, their experience to to it. You're really saying here is the framework rather than driven by the participants. What's your What's your take on these two different styles?
0: I have a question on that other style. Do any of those people get paid for results? And the answer is... Probably not. Oh, not probably not. They don't. They don't. Of course they don't. So get when, get, so thank you, pay, you for that. I get paid for results. It's a little different. I don't, if you get paid for spending time, well then you can just sit there and babble away and ask questions and do everything you want to. That's fine. I don't get paid for that. I get paid for results. When you get paid for results, see, I, This idea that somehow I'm going to sit in a room with you and ask you questions and God is going to walk in and you're going to come up with an answer? Uh, Yeah, right. Maybe not. Maybe not. I teach people to learn from everyone around them. By the way, not just me. They get coaching from everyone around them and everybody gives them ideas. And they say thank you for the ideas.
1: Love it. Love it, Marshall. I I would agree with you that in many cases this... um, coaching kind of gets lost with the fact that, why are they hiring you if you're just a great question asker? (laughs) So
0: we'll stir up some of the certifications up there, Marshall. When I know nothing about the question, I should not provide an answer. But if I'm coaching someone and they need to be better at delegation, say, I've written books about this, right? I'm the world's number one leadership thinker. What am I supposed to do? Pretend I know nothing? I've seen this problem a thousand times. I've got something that I could do to help them get better. If I have an answer, I'll give them an answer if it's going to be helpful, right? They don't have to do it. I give them an idea. Well, I mean, if I have no ideas, I think it's very good that I just ask questions. Love if I it. have ideas, I probably should express an opinion. Well, if the coach doesn't know anything, I think asking questions is a real good idea because they shouldn't express opinions because they don't have any. Oh, I love it, Marshall. I'm just, I'm glad that I
1: asked the question because it's been on my mind for some time, uh, around it. So, Marshall, when you're getting confidential feedback, what would be some of the things that you are asking sort of peers and, uh, people that report to them or if they have anybody that's sort of above them like a board, what, what are you asking as far as the measurements that you then get judged
0: for results? five simple questions. Number one, what is a person doing well? Number two, what environments or situations bring out the best in this person? Number three, what does a person need to do better? What are their challenges? Number four, what environments or situations bring out the worst in this person? And number five, imagine you were this person's mentor, coach, or advisor on any topic, large to small. What advice would you have for that person? That's all I ask. So how do you measure that pre-post? Well, what we do is then I write a report. The person agrees that, yeah, yeah, I feel good about these things. I want to get better at those things. Let's pretend it's a CEO. Then the board has to sign off on it. The board says, yes, yes, yes. If this CEO gets better at this stuff, judged by these people, it's worth this money, then I have a simple mini-survey process. And the mini-survey is uh, minus five got worse, zero didn't change, plus five got better, and written comments, and they measure, do they get better or worse? Not as judged by themselves, but as everyone around them. Typical coaching clients average about 18 key stakeholders, and they determine the person's improvement.
1: Awesome. Awesome. What else about your system that would be sort of unique about what you do that's sort of outside of, quote, unquote, the normal coaching stuff that's talked out there that... uh...
0: Well, you know, when you say the normal coaching stuff, it's not like my stuff is abnormal. Um, Coachsource did a big survey of coaches, and my coaching process is probably the most widely used coaching process in the world. So it's not like it's never been used before. I mean, eight, 1,800 people have been certified in my coaching process. Tens of thousands of people have used it. It's just different than. Look, if people want to use this other coaching thing where you just sit there, hey, they're not coaching CEOs either. Can you imagine these people I coach? who I said, How do you feel about this? How do you feel about that? Ooh, have you thought of this? After about 10 minutes of that, you know what they're going to say? Goodbye. Mm-hmm. Yeah, these are big people. They don't have time for that. Get to the
1: point. Get, Get moving on line. from there. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things in your book, thank you for that, Marshall. That's, that's awesome. One of the things in your book, and uh, I've actually included reference to it in my latest book, The Quest for Purpose, is you talk about uh, two things, you know, people... Really are inferior doers to planners. Mm-hmm. And the other com- or the other concept that's linked to that is around nothing happens without structure. Right. Just,
0: just reference
1: those two sort of concepts of why
0: those are important for us to kind of move forward in our lives. Well, we all have this delusion in life that the planner is the doer. The planner is planning to go on the healthy food diet. It's not the hungry doer staring at the chocolate cake. It's easy to be a planner, and it's real hard to be a doer. Uh, We believe if I understand, I will do. There's a huge gap between I understand and I do. Understanding is easy, doing is hard. Let me give you a simple case study with myself. Every day, I pay a woman to call me on the phone. I pay a woman every day. She listens to me read questions I wrote and provide answers I wrote every day. She says, thank you, and hangs up. Now somebody asks me, why do you pay a woman every day to call you on the phone? Just to listen to you read questions you wrote and provide answers you wrote every day. Don't you know the theory about how to change behavior? I wrote the theory about how to change behavior. That's why I pay a woman to call me on the phone every day. I know how hard it is. My name is Marshall Goldsmith. I'm the world's number one ranked leadership thinker. The world's number one ranked executive coach. I pay a woman to call me on the phone named Kate every day. Every day she listens to me just read comments I wrote and provide answers, questions I wrote and provide answers I wrote every day. Why do I pay her to do this every day? My name is Marshall Goldsmith. I am too cowardly to do this by myself. I am Mm -hmm. too undisciplined to do this by myself. I need help and it's okay. I need help and it's okay. Well, once we get over this egotistical, macho nonsense that we don't need help and we don't need structure, life is so much better. Now, I'll share some of my questions every day, but they're not intended to be your listeners' questions. By the way, here's the homework assignment for your, your listeners. It takes three minutes a day. It's going to help you get better at almost anything. It costs nothing. Some of them are skeptical now thinking, we yeah, out three minutes, costs nothing. I doubt it. Half the people quit in two weeks. And they don't quit because it doesn't work. They quit because it does work. Get out an Excel spreadsheet. On one column, write down a series of questions that can be answered with a yes, no, or a number. Yes is one, no, or zero, or a number. Every day, fill out that little form seven days a week, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. At the end of the week, you get a report card. I'm going to warn all your listeners in advance, the report card at the end of the week may not be quite as beautiful as a corporate values plaque you see stuck up on the wall. If you do this every day, you quickly learn one thing, life. Life is incredibly easy to talk. Life is incredibly difficult to live. Mm. It's hard to live. And have you ever tried this? Marshall,
1: I I have my clients do it. It's hard. And I I have it in front of me. So I do have a question that actually I need to resolve with my clients who use this.
0: Yeah. Is that
1: uh, how do you keep the engagement level? Some of
0: them seem to get bored with the process, or just get disconnected. What's What's your... You just confront that directly. This takes two minutes a day. Do you get bored in two minutes? They're not bored. Oh, and by the way, have you heard this one, I don't have time? Yes. It takes two minutes a day. They're not bored, and they do have the time. You need to tell people in front, you're probably going to quit. Which I do. And it's not that you're bored, and it's not that you don't have time. This is hard to do. It's painful. Now, by the way, I have a gift. I, I don't know. You didn't share this in my introduction. A, a special gift uh, about myself that I'd like to share with you right now. I don't know if you knew this, but I'm incredibly impressed with my amazing ability on a daily basis to <laughs> screw something up every day. I don't know about you, but I'm just shocked at my skill in that dimension. Well, if you do this every day, got to look at it. It's hard. Mm. Very, very hard to do. You aren't bored. You're not too busy. It's too painful. It's very, very hard to do this every day. And it's that day to day discipline. People get also bored for being on a healthy foods diet and they get bored with working out. And they start, well, welcome to the new year. Yep. 30 days in, yeah, the, 30 the, days, the number yeah. declines quickly. Yeah, yeah, well, and you know, you got to tell people look, I don't care if you change or not, but if you're going to change, you have to change. And if you don't measure it, it probably won't happen. Thank you for that, uh,
1: Marshall. And I do include, you know, I just, I've said it several times already. I just encourage everybody that's listening to this show that you get the book Triggers. The question grid is in there. We talk about, you know, passive and active questions, what oh, yeah. like you do. I said
0: passive and active, too. My daughter Kelly taught me that. Active questions are a fantastic idea. They all start with the phrase, did I do my best too? And if you look at those six active questions every day, you just do those. You'll get better at almost anything. Did I do my best to set clear goals? Did I do my best to make progress toward achieving my goals? Did I do my best to find meaning? Did I do my best to be happy? Did I do my best to, to build positive relationships? And did I do my best to be fully engaged? Every day, ask yourself those six questions. And our research on this is amazing. Just doing this every day, you get better at almost everything. It's amazing how discipline has results, right, Marshall? It's pretty amazing. <laughs> Let me give you the hardest question, though, every day. This is that question that really gets boring quickly and you don't have time for. The hardest question every day has four qualities. Number one, you write the question. Now why is that hard? You cannot blame the idiot that wrote the question. Yes. two, you know the answer. Why is that hard? You can't say you don't know how to do it. Number three, you know it's important. You can't say it's trivial. And number four, all you have to do to make a high score is try. And you might say, well, why would that be hard? That should be the easiest question every day. You know what's so hard? Nobody to blame. Mm-hmm. Nobody to blame. Pretty Holding much. a
1: mirror is sometimes the most difficult thing for people, isn't it? Oh, so
0: hard. Pretty much every day, I fail at least one question that I did. Write. I, I wrote the question. I do know the answer. I know it's important, and I didn't even try. Whose fault is it? Taking responsibility, right? It's tough. By the way, this. It's easy to talk about taking responsibility. If it were so easy to do, everybody would be doing it. That's why you and I have jobs forever. Oh yeah, taking <laughs> responsibility is very, very tough. Being responsible for own lives as opposed to blaming others, very, very hard. Hmm. I- agreed. Now, Marshall, we're
1: getting closer to the end of the show, and man, you've done a fabulous job of just framing stuff out very, very quickly. If you were to l- leave tidbits, sort of three, two or three sort of insights, your of what I need to consider to really to transform my life or to change it in whatever context, personally or professionally, what would that wisdom be from 40 years of doing this?
0: Well, I'm going to now give your listeners the best coaching advice they're ever going to get. Are you ready? Take a I'm breath. ready. Take a We're deep. ready. Take a deep breath. <laughs> ah, smile. Imagine you're 95 years old and you're on your deathbed. You're just getting ready to die, but right before you take that last breath, you're given a beautiful gift. The ability to go back in time and talk to the person listening to me right now. The ability to help that person be a better leader, much more important. The ability to help that person have a better life. What advice would the wise 95-year-old you who knows what really matters in life and what didn't and what was important and what wasn't important? What advice would that wise old person have for the youth that's listening to me right now? Well, you don't have to say anything or do anything or write anything. Just answer that question in your head. What advice would that old person have for you? Whatever you're thinking now, do that. In terms of a performance appraisal, that's the only one that'll matter. That old person says you did the right thing, you did. That old person says you screwed up, you did. You don't have to impress anybody else. Some mm-hmm. friends of mine interviewed all folks who were dying got to ask this question. What advice would you have? On the personal side, three themes. Theme number one, three words, be happy now. Not next week, not next month, not next year. That great Western disease. I'll be happy when I get that status money. Yeah. BMW condominium. We all have the same win. That old person is win. Learning point from old people: I got so busy chasing what I didn't have, I couldn't see what I did have. Mm-hmm. I had everything and didn't see it. Learning point number two: friends and family. You may think your company is important when you're on your deathbed and you look around, none of your employees are waving goodbye. All you realize: friends and family. are the only people who care right now. And number three, if you have a dream, go for it. Because you don't go for it when you're 35, you may not when you're 85. Business advice isn't much different. Life is short, have fun, do whatever you can do to help people, and if you get, and go for it. Do what you think is right. You may not win, at least you tried. Old people, we almost never regret the risk we take and fail. We always regret the risk we fail to take. And final thing I would like to say is thank you so much for inviting me to, to talk with you today, and I hope this is uh, useful to your listeners and maybe help somebody have a little bit better life.
1: Oh, I'm sure. Thank, Marshall. Now, Marshall, you had your email that you'd given us where you're willing to give us maybe that Excel sheet, yeah, or they course. want to get oh, a hold of you right. or find out more. Right. Where, what? Where should they go to
0: find out more about Marshall? M-A-R-S-H-A-L-L at MarshallGoldsmith.com and my website www.MarshallGoldsmith.com. And that fit, yeah, did I talk about the 15 Coaches Project?
1: You had not though this will be uh, aired when it's uh, already expired. Okay. <laughs> but if you wanted to share, I think, uh, you know, as a as a wrap-up, is um, just share your project as far as
0: what your intent is there well, I'm with the 15 coaches. 15 people, unlimited coaching, mentoring for life, and the only price is when they get old they have to do the same thing. And I'm really going to encourage a lot of people like me who are thought leaders to start trying to do this uh, pay it forward just the idea of give back all you have and encourage others to do the same thing and hopefully the idea will spread to other people as well.
1: Well, thank you for doing that, Marshall. I know that uh, uh it's something that's appreciated in the industry, and you know just leverage um you know creating individuals where we have all this knowledge, but if we just take it. <laughs> When we pass away, then we really haven't left that legacy or the impact that we could have if we had trained others to do it. So thank you for that opportunity that you are sharing with 15 people. So I'm sure they will be very, very thankful for that
0: opportunity. Uh, well, the opportunity thing about giving away knowledge is when I give away money, I don't have the money anymore. When I give away knowledge, I still have the knowledge and someone else does too. Very, very important, wise comment. Well... Uh, Dr. Marshall Goldsmith,
1: thank you very much for spending time with us and on this show. I very, very much appreciate it. Uh, As we do every week, uh, I just want to encourage listeners, if you enjoyed what was going on, that you would share this show with other individuals, pass it on, tell people about it. Uh, take action on the items that Marshall shared with you today so that your life can be better just thinking about it and planning it, it's not going to change anything and as always we appreciate that you have been hanging out with us I'm Dr. Ken Keyes and this has been Secrets of Success have a great week
0: thanks for exploring the secrets of success with us